0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and joining me tonight is co-host, Nathan Elaine Kemp. Welcome, Nathan.
0: Thank you, Bernice. It's great to be here.
1: Well, great to have you. How are you doing tonight?
0: I'm doing well, and I'm very excited about our guest tonight.
1: Oh, so am I Well, I also want to welcome the callers and chatters To research at the National Archives and beyond This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy An opportunity to listen, learn, and take action You can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Central Excuse me, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Mountain, and 6 p.m. Pacific I think I covered everybody Where I will have a wonderful Lineup of experts who will share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. All of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions of the guests. Following the show, you're invited to post comments or questions on the genealogy and history forum of AfroGenius.com. dot com. Well, Nathan, you know, in the beginning we said we were we have been really looking forward to this show, and I can tell you, this is one of those topics that I I really don't know a whole a lot about. What about you, Nathan?
0: I have to say, I don't know a whole lot about the topic myself before reading this book. But this is why this book is so important. I think about growing up, uh, taking history or social studies classes when I was in grade school and high school. I was never exposed to anything like this.
1: Well, nor was I. But we now have someone who has really taken time to just study Study the history, put the history in a book that I think is something that we can just spread the word and get everybody to read and understand about the african American Odyssey of John Kissel. The author of this book, kevin Lothar, uh documents the life of a sierra Sierra Leonean who survived slavery in Charleston, South Carolina, and served with the British forces during the American Revolution. He eventually returned to his homeland where he campaigned among his people to end the slave trading. Now, Kevin majored in history before joining the Peace Corps and teaching in 1963 and 64 at the Sierra Leone Grammar School in Freetown in nineteen seventy one he helped to found the non governmental organization Africa. Many of you will know about Africa, I'm sure, and later managed its humanitarian organization uh the programs in southern africa for twenty nine years. He retired in two thousand seven. So let me give a warm welcome to Kevin Lothar, to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Kevin, welcome.
2: Thank you very much, Bernice and Natan.
1: I'm, I'm really so happy to have you come on the show tonight. I I remember when you started telling us about the story of John Kissel, and I immediately turned to you and said, well, would you please come on the show? You have to share this with everyone. So let's thought at the beginning. Please share with the listeners what prompted you to begin the exploration of the life of uh, John Kissel.
2: Well, you know Bernice, it really goes back to when I was teaching in in Sierra Leone. One of the uh, subjects I was given to teach was African history. And of course, I knew nothing about African history. That Mm -hmm. wasn't taught Uh, in colleges uh, when I was going to college in in the U.S. And starting then, I I started educating myself first about African history, and then when I came back to the States, about African American history. And I've been educating myself ever since. And that's basically what led me down many, many paths of research uh, culminating in this book. And in a sense it's a closing of the circle for me because it it's taken me back to Sierra Leone almost fifty years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh it's it's a, it's been a very fulfilling experience.
1: Well, it it I can imagine it, it being a fulfilling experience. Uh you certainly tackled a very complex uh issue. So let's put into context, when was John Kissel born and taken into slavery?
2: He was born uh, in Sierra Leone, what is now Sierra Leone, uh, probably in the year 1760. And when he was about 13, he was kidnapped uh, in a slave raid on his uncle's village and put on a ship to Charleston, South Carolina. And so he arrived there probably around this time in 1773,
1: so we know. So you, you actually have the, his age, and you, you know it was from his uncle's, you say his uncle's village.
2: His uncle's village. Many years later, he told uh, British governors in, in Sierra Leone about this uh, portion of his life. <clears throat> That's how we know roughly when he was born, approximately when he was taken as a slave, and where he came as a slave to Charleston.
1: Now, you know, when, when looking at the whole African slave trade, uh, how many, about how many Africans were enslaved during the Middle Passage, just to give us the context of what we're dealing with.
2: Well, <clears throat> this, some of the figures may surprise you, and, and for your listeners, uh, let me refer them to uh, uh, something that they can access on the Internet, and that's the Transatlantic <clears throat> Slave Trade Database. And this records close to ninety percent of all of the slave ship voyages ever undertaken uh There are excellent records because most of these voyages were insured now the best figures that are available indicate that uh <coughs> excuse me
1: mm-hmm.
2: about twelve and a half million people uh were taken from the African shores over the course of the hundreds of years that the slave trade operated. About half of them uh, went to Brazil. Another quarter or so went to the British uh, colonies in the Caribbean. About 305,000 were destined for America, and about 252,000 of them actually lived to step on shore in the new American colonies. So, it's a relatively small number of people, actually, as part of the 12.5 million who were taken.
1: It's just daunting just to hear those numbers, though.
2: Well, <clears throat> statistics are, you know, they're always subtle. And uh, <clears throat> I, I was surprised at some of these statistics myself. Most people don't realize uh, how many people were actually taken to Brazil, uh, to Cuba. Uh, to Jamaica and, and many of the Caribbean islands, um, and really, that relatively small number of people were brought to uh, the American colonies.
1: And you know, with this small number, what type of you know documentation did you find um, that described the life? Uh, that these enslaved people led in South Carolina in, the let's say, the late ni- 1700s.
2: Right. Uh, the focus of this book, of course, is on John Kizzle and Kizzle really did not, uh, fortunately for him, uh, was not taken to a uh, rice or indigo plantation uh, where he probably would have died very young Uh he lived in Charleston as a slave, and there the mortality was considerably less among slaves and among whites as well um, the What we know about slave life in Charleston is largely through the work of several historians uh There are very, very few in fact literally no documents available produced within the black community or by people who were enslaved in Charleston. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we know relatively little <clears throat> about about that community. Uh, but in the book, I've tried to paint uh, a picture of a an African-American, a black community in Charleston that basically was a majority community in the city and which controlled much of the space, let us say, of people's lives Uh there is documentation that uh blacks in charleston at, at that time uh controlled much of the economy of the the city uh, the food markets the fishing uh the ships uh you know the boats that went up and down the rivers and along the coast uh which meant that they controlled in a sense the uh the passage of communication as well
1: mm-hmm. um
2: now, this didn't last many years beyond the Revolution, but during that period of Kissel's presence there, he was part of a functioning African-American community that really uh, was in a position to control much of its daily life. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was one of the things that surprised me most when I was doing the research.
1: Well, that is quite surprising, Um to to know that he, they had that that degree of freedom and um it, say more
2: <laughs> well <laughs> you know to use the word freedom in that context is a little uh odd but uh you're correct um in a sense many of the africans who were deposited on the shores there um although they were slaves in one sense they may have had a greater degree of uh, freedom in terms of what they did with their time and their lives um, it it's It really sounds contradictory, but um, in spite of the laws that existed on paper to control slaves, um, blacks in Charleston at that time could pretty much go anywhere and do anything. You had slaves who rented their own apartments, you had slaves who had their own horses. Um, so they were able to create uh, a space, if you will, for, for their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and you learn this in, in part by reading the newspapers of the time in Charleston, where whites were continual, constantly complaining about the fact that blacks were just moving around the town, doing this, doing that, um. And and there was nothing that they they could really do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that would change in the decades to come, and and uh, you know I do touch on some of that <clears throat> later on. But but in the the years leading up to the revolution and immediately uh, afterwards, Charleston was a, a very different city than you might imagine.
0: Kevin, you you mentioned um, talking about pre Revolutionary War Charleston. I recall reading in your book about the role of black women dominating the markets, which I found very interesting. I remember taking a class, a history course in college called The Emergence of the Third World, and it talked about the impact of, of Europeans colonizing India and China, how they helped liberate women. But in West Africa, they had sort of a negative impact because the women there were your merchants, And do you know if, for some reason, the fact that women were dominating the markets in South Carolina and Charleston, did that carry over from what they were doing back in their native land?
2: Well, I I think you can make that assumption, but I did not come across any uh, clear documentation to that effect. But my own long experience of living in Africa and traveling I've spent about thirteen years of my life on the continent uh wherever you go, it's the women who who really control the traditional markets and uh I think this was almost certainly true in Kisell's homeland um, and that many of the <clears throat> the people who were brought to charleston uh, the women slaves that they 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 had had some experience in marketing and uh, uh some rudimentary skills at least in terms of handling money or things of value um so i think you can make that assumption but i think it's an area which uh you know probably could do with some some very very good research
1: now you know you spoke of of uh kissel uh basically being captured at the age of 13 and were you able to find the circumstances uh, that led to him being captured and and sent to America?
2: Well, he told the story uh, m- many years later when he returned to his homeland. Uh, and this was a story recorded by uh, a British governor uh, in around 1810. Uh, he told the story that uh, he had gone on a visit to his uncle's village, Uh, The uncles in African cultures are very often more important than the father. And uh, he was in the uncle's village, and I think the first night they were there, they were attacked um, by slave raiders, not European slave raiders, but African slave raiders, and, and seized. Now, the story he told was that his father, who was a chief, or a headman in this in another village tried to ransom him and this is also a little mind-boggling for people on this side of the atlantic but the father was actually a slave owner himself mm-hmm. which was not at all unusual and so the father said well he would trade two or three of his slaves to get his son back and whoever had taken the boy refused To make such a trade, and the next thing we know, he's he's on a ship bound for Charleston. Now, in the book, I go into some other details that Kizl also talked about uh, later in life. um, His apparently being accused of being a witch. Yes. But that was, you know, if that was true, it was probably just a a means by which to uh, uh, put him on board the ship. Uh, it was very common if you wanted to send someone abroad as a slave, you just said, oh, he's he or she is a witch, uh, mm-hmm. put him in chains, put him on the ship, and, and we'll be done with it.
1: Okay, so he's on the ship, he's on the way to Charleston. What resources did you use to gain insight into the slave sales and auctions that occurred in Charleston?
2: Well, again, this may surprise you, but um, there are really no uh, surviving records of slave auctions and sales in Charleston. Um, <clears throat> there might have been at some point, but uh, you know, Charleston has had fires, uh, severe mm-hmm. fires, and earthquakes, and what have you. The the bottom line is that <clears throat> there just isn't any. Real documentation on the conduct of slave the slave business to use that term in Charleston now we know that you know there were uh there was one or two main places in the city where slaves were auctioned and uh, if you've read the book, you know toward the end there's a very poignant uh, account of a slave auction um written by a British visitor. Um, and it's something that Kissel probably would have read in, in, a, in his newspaper back in Freetown in the 1820s. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, we just don't really know much about the, the actual workings of the business. We know something about the how the ships were brought in, how the quarantine operated on Sullivan's Island. Um If you read the newspapers of the time, you'll see the advertisements for auctions and sales and what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is some information on prices. So you can piece things together, but it would have been much better, of course, to have written documents, uh, insurance policies, that sort of thing, uh, to give it a, a much better picture. One thing that I found interesting was that If you were a slave merchant in Charleston at that time, that was a position of very high esteem and repute within Mm -hmm. the white society. Um, If you were just an ordinary storekeeper, uh, you were down at the bottom rung. So being a slave merchant was was really considered to be the uh, – you were at the top rung of the, the local economy.
1: Which is quite interesting in and of itself. The 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 manner in which they would aspire to be at the top of the uh, society as a slave merchant. Quite uh. interesting. Quite interesting. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about the Revolutionary War. Come back in one minute, okay? Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Bennett, and co host, Nathan Kemp, and you're listening to Kevin Lothar. Uh, Kevin Lothar has just shared with us just some basic insight into slavery in Charleston and exactly what happened to John Kissel. And now we're going to move into a discussion about the Revolutionary War. Well, let's well, just tell us. I mean, we understand that John Kissel fought in the Revolutionary War, but just what was going on at that time by him making the decision to go to the British rather than with the Americans?
2: Well, in, in Charleston, of course, when Charleston finally fell to the British in 1780, uh, the war had been going on for several years, and the British finally took the city, um, in May of 1780. Now, there were about 5,000 uh, slaves living in Charleston at that time, only a handful of free blacks, uh, by the way. And many of those people probably uh, understood the the equation, let, let's put it uh, very clearly. Uh, the British seemed to be winning. They had all the, the power, And it made sense to uh, either run away from your master or mistress and join the British if you could. Or in some cases, your owner might, uh, if they were loyalists, uh, offer you uh, as somebody who could serve with the British and the loyalist forces uh, for the duration of the conflict. Now, we don't know precisely what prompted Kisel to join the british whether his mistress uh might have been a loyalist i think she was probably a patriot or maybe neutral but all we know from Kisel, from his telling this british governor years later is that he joined the british army probably as a, a servant to an officer and he later described himself as a soldier but i I don't believe that Kissel actually shouldered arms uh, or fought in an actual combat situation. He was at the Battle of King's Mountain uh, in October of seventeen eighty which was a pivotal battle in the revolution uh, where the mm-hmm. patriots defeated the the loyalists and Kisel at that point was probably taken prisoner along with several hundred. Uh, loyalists who were at that battle But most of them were either Released or escaped and Kissel, uh Probably made his way Back to Charleston uh, In company with one or more officers um, He would not have been able to travel On his own, it just would have been too dangerous mm-hmm. um, So <clears throat> There are records of Blacks who served In the on the patriot side of the revolution and even some who served on the loyalist side and there are several books that have been written about this and these can be consulted by those interested uh Kissel does not appear in any of those records and he does not appear in any of the British military muster records either okay. which I consulted in uh, England but that doesn't really tell us anything because the records were not always kept uh, accurately and many of them were lost so we have Kizzle's word that he was at the Battle of Kings Mountain and people I've talked to historians of the revolution agree that you know why would he have just picked the Battle of Kings Mountain and just said oh I was at this battle unless he was really there Mm -hmm. so um, we have to believe that he was at that battle that he smelled the the smoke, and heard the groans of the dying. And he probably was with the commanding officer, uh, a British officer named Patrick Ferguson, when he was killed, uh, leading his troops. And so it must have been a a very memorable experience for the young man. He would, would have been about 20 at that point.
1: And when you say these are his words, is this a letter? Is this testimony? Where are you hearing those words?
2: His The various uh, stories he told, you know, how he was taken as a slave and so forth, this was all recounted to a particular British governor mm-hmm. in, eight, in 1810 mm-hmm. uh, when Kissel at that point would have been a 50-year-old man. And this governor <clears throat> uh, wrote a fairly detailed account of Kissel's life as told by Kizzle. And this was actually uh, published uh, along with some of Kissel's own writings in London in 1812. And again, 12 years later. Um, so this is uh, one of the sources that we use for reconstructing Kizzle's life.
1: Right, yes, which is which is absolutely wonderful that you would even have that to reconstruct his life. Well, this, could you give us some uh, insight as to why many slaves in the southern states chose not to flee to the British during the Revolutionary War?
2: Well, I think you can probably guess <clears throat> at some of them. I mean, first of all, uh, you have family ties um, and those those were very powerful, so for a man who is quote unquote married um and has children either on the plantation on his plantation or another one it it would be very difficult uh just to walk away from that relationship uh You had the fear of the unknown. Uh, there was a lot of violence and to just walk off in, in a sense uh into the midst of that was certainly daunting um, in a few cases at least you probably had a sense of loyalty that slaves had to their owners and there is one one example of this that uh, I mentioned in the book so that's something that you know you have to factor in And then finally, um, you know, the the slaves were watching very carefully what the Patriots were doing and also what the Loyalists and the British were doing. Mm -hmm. The British, British, although they were encouraging slaves to come to their side, to their ranks, they also were making very plain in various ways that they had no intention of tampering with slavery once they had won the the war and in writing this book you know my my assumption was in many many cases that uh slaves were smart uh and very very uh, protective of their own security and their family's security mm-hmm. and they would have sized up this, the situation very very carefully so some may have said well we're not so sure the British are going to win. We're not so sure the British are, uh, you know, are going to free us. So it wasn't a, a, a cut and dried situation that mm-hmm. they faced, and they had to make some very, very difficult calculations.
1: And I can imagine that being quite difficult uh, to to be in that position to see both sides at war and trying to decide if I stay with the Patriots, will they let me free? Or if I go to the other side, will I be free? Or That's right. You know, where do I go? What do I do? Mm-hmm. You know, Natan, right. any questions from you?
0: Just to follow up, I believe, Kevin, that you um, stated clearly in your book that the British did not give clear indications of any type of reward to entice slaves to join their side?
2: Well, there were a couple of occasions where they did, but uh, very early in the war, uh, in fact, even before the the colonies formally declared independence, uh, the British governor in in Virginia uh, essentially offered freedom Uh, years later during the war another British commander did likewise but the British really never sorted out a a firm clear policy of what to do uh, in terms of the slave trade slavery and the rewards that might be available to, to blacks who joined Uh, the British side Um, and as I said earlier uh, the British really had no intention of of tampering with slavery after the war was over so uh, they were in a very very conflicted situation from that standpoint and that also applied to uh, whether or not to recruit blacks formally into military units. Both the Patriots and the British considered doing this on a on a large scale and then backed off from doing it at all. So very, very few uh, blacks were recruited as, especially in the South by the Patriots. Almost none. You had some serving in militia units in Virginia and places like that. And the British never really went much beyond uh, recruiting a few hundred uh here and there so there were a few blacks who fought in combat for the british but <clears throat> not enough to really make any difference
0: and i guess um for slaves let's say in charleston during this time period they're trying to read the tea leaves which way should they go right. and a lot of times it was probably Don't take any action.
2: Well, certainly up to 1780, that would have been the case. And um, we really don't know how many slaves went over to the British at that time. It was probably um, at least several hundred, and maybe more. Um, But the numbers are are difficult to pin down. Um, We do know how many uh, blacks were evacuated by the british uh in seventeen eighty two from charleston uh that was several thousand so that gives you some sense of the the magnitude so it's it's possible to suggest that the majority of of um adult blacks in Charleston at that time probably um, were sympathy uh, sympathizers of on the British cause and probably uh, wanted to leave with the british at the end of the revolution
1: mm-hmm. however they had was it uh, a false expectation though that by leaving with the british that they would have some degree of freedom or would end up going back to africa
2: <clears throat> there was that fear and there were british officers who were also uh taking advantage of the situation and, in effect, uh, planning to take slaves or former slaves to the West Indies and, and selling them.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: some of some of that actually happened. Uh, it was a very, as you can imagine, in, in, in that environment with uh, the war winding down, the British realizing that they're going to lose, by now Yorktown is, has happened. Uh, everyone was sort of looking out for himself. And uh, it would have been a very, very difficult period for any uh, former slave in that environment. Um, And they would not really have had any clear sense of what their future held for them. Uh, The British really weren't sure where they were going to take them. Ultimately, as you know from the book, uh, many of them were, were brought to New York, which was the British headquarters at the end of the war. And from there, they and thousands of uh, white and black loyalists were evacuated to Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and to a few other places, but principally to Nova Scotia. And that's where Kissel, uh was evacuated uh, from New York.
1: Now, how were you able to track John Kissel to Nova Scotia?
2: <clears throat> there, well... There's a book of Negroes, as it's called, which the British commander in New York uh, prepared, and it's actually called The Book of Negroes, and you can consult this book. And it lists most of the uh, former slaves who were in New York who had joined the British during the Revolution and who were entitled in the... uh, view of the British commander at the time to have British protection and to be evacuated uh, from New York. Mm-hmm. Now kizzle you would have assumed that kizzle would appear in that book. He doesn't. Where he oh. appears is in a uh, document that shows all of the former slaves who had arrived in Nova Scotia uh, in a particular place called Shelburne Mm -hmm. in 1782-83. They were mustered in by the Nova Scotian governor in the summer of 1784. Uh, There had been a race riot in Shelburne, which is in the southeastern part of Nova Scotia, and this had led the authorities to investigate uh, the conditions under which these former slaves were forced to live. And Kizzle's name and that of his wife, Phyllis, uh, and their two children appear. Well, I'm sorry, the, the children hadn't been born yet, but uh, Kizzle and his wife, Phyllis, appear in the records of this uh, muster, as it was called. And each... Individual was asked to explain when he or she was brought to Nova Scotia from New York, what had been promised to them, uh, and so forth. So that's how we know for sure that Kissel was in Nova Scotia.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and the documentation uh, is is pretty clear.
1: Now, do you start seeing Kissel kind of rise as uh, an advocate, if you will, or uh, uh, abolitionists or uh, someone to speak against slavery? Was it in Nova Scotia or was it when he returned to Sierra Leone?
2: It seems fairly clear that it was after he returned to Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, although he was literate probably by this time, uh we don't know of any documents that he wrote while in Nova Scotia and there have been many books written about this experience uh, of the former black the former slaves in Nova Scotia one of the best books is uh called rough crossings which came out a few years ago and focuses on the Nova Scotian experience um but kessel does not um Appear in any of the the local records or in any of later records as having taken a leadership role in uh, Nova Scotia. What I think did happen, however, is that by this time he had become a member of the Baptist Church Mm -hmm. and was beginning to um, develop himself as a, a preacher. Uh, he came under the influence of a, uh, a very, very fine uh, black Nova Scotian preacher, another former slave. And um, so if you assume that religious life at that time in Nova Scotia among the blacks was very, very important, I think it's possible to surmise that that kizzle was, beginning to achieve some sense of of leadership among his people. But he was not among those who uh, made the key decisions, at least not openly, uh, to leave Nova Scotia in 1792 and to go back to Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, much later in his life, he told two American missionaries uh, when he was about the age of 60, that he believed all blacks in america should come back to africa and that africa was for black people and that you know they must come back to reclaim their homeland
1: mm-hmm. so
2: it it's hard to imagine that Kizzle didn't have even when he was in nova scotia very strong feelings uh about what was going on and about the experiences that they were facing mm-hmm. um, and the the life in Nova Scotia was very hard they were although they were technically free they were basically uh labor slaves uh to to whites in Nova Scotia mhm mm-hmm. and that that was really the main reason that they decided to emigrate to Sierra Leone
1: well let me see if we have any uh any of our guests or listeners who would like to ask a question If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. That's 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. So Kissel has now returned to Freetown. So what can you tell us about the experience in Freetown, in Sierra
2: Leone? When the the Nova Scotians, as they're now called, when these emigrants arrived from Nova Scotia, there were about 1,100. When they arrived on the shore of what is now Freetown, there was no town. It was simply Bush. They literally had to carve uh, a community from forest, and they did that, and and established Freetown as as their home and as the capital of, of their country. Now <clears throat> Sierra Leone at that time was simply the immediate area around uh, the shoreline that they they occupied. So they created Freetown um from whole whole cloth so to speak mm-hmm. and literally had to you know fight the wild animals fight the snakes cut the trees and build shelters it was quite a daunting task and you know, it
1: sounds like it was quite a daunting task no doubt about it well you know in your in your whole research did you experience any surprises and researching John Kessel's life or uh, the what was the general attitude about the slave trade
2: <clears throat> well one of the uh, things that you learn about the slave trade on the african side is that and this is nothing not original to my research but um there could not have been a slave trade if there had not been uh, a partnership in effect between african slave traders and european slave traders uh it was a business and um there's no other way of, of describing it um, and although i had known that before i started researching the book um you know when i had to confront this uh more directly um it it really struck home uh, this is where Kizil's own words come into play because he, uh, in 1810-1811, wrote a number of reports and letters to this British governor in Freetown um, about his efforts to get the chiefs and his and the people in uh, down the coast a little bit, try to get them to stop trading their people uh, in, into foreign slavery. And to uh, see the impact that the slave trade was having on communities and on on the people themselves, um, Kissel was very, very direct and very, very clear about how this uh, was happening, and you know I quote him to some length in the book, and i so far as I know, this is the only first-hand account of the slave trade through African eyes that uh, exists uh, to this day. Uh, there are other reports that are alleged to have uh, uh, been made on a first-hand basis, but uh, I think Kissel's is really the only one that holds water. So that, that was really quite sobering. Uh, the other thing that if, if I were to meet John Kisel today, you know, the, the first thing I would ask him is why he did not seek out his own people uh, when he returned to Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be um, many, many years, uh, more than 20 years before he would actually find out that his uncle was still living. Uh, Kisel never on his own. Tried to find his his uh, birth village or his people, and you know there obviously were reasons for that, but it's not clear uh, what was in his mind. Uh, but the uncle came and found him mm-hmm. and took him back to to his uh, people. Uh, again, this is about twenty years after they've they've returned that Kisel returned to Africa. And the only an in instance of this that I found was in a letter that Kisel wrote uh, to a, a British friend. And uh, quite by accident, I found this letter in London. So we can document that this actually happened.
1: Mm-hmm. And in this, this is perhaps uh, a, a really amazing story in and of itself, because how did his uncle know how to get in touch with him?
2: And well, I guess that's I tell, one
1: of those questions you could ask
2: him, yeah, you know, well, I tell I think I know what happened, <clears throat> and uh, I, I describe this in the book <clears throat> when Kissel was making his tour of you know trying to get the chiefs to stop trading in slaves, and at the same time he was confronting some of the white slave traders in the area this is This is a story that would have uh rippled out into uh far into the bush. Uh, 20 30 40 50 100 miles people would have been hearing the story of this you know man from the country who had come back to Africa after being a slave and who is now confronting the slave traders and there must have been something that tipped the uncle off to the fact that this might actually be uh his his uh, nephew mm-hmm. so uh Kissel doesn't go into a great depth about this, uh, but it must have been an extremely emotional moment when when he was reunited with the uncle because he believed that the uncle had died in the the raid on the village.
1: That's right. That's
2: right.
1: That's right. That's right. Well, did John Kissel ever live to see slavery outlawed in the British Empire?
2: I'd like to hope so uh but the last sight of him we have the, la- the la- last documented sight is in 1830 and he would have been 70 years old at that point he had actually detained in his village uh an african who was in, engaged in kidnapping children now mm-hmm. the british the british abolished slavery in the British Empire in 1833. So if Kissel managed to live that long, then he would have been able to celebrate the abolition of, of slavery throughout the British Empire. Mm-hmm. But it, it would have been a, a very, very mixed victory because domestic servitude within uh, the African communities continued and actually intensified in the, the decades to come so meant you know the the british action in abolishing slavery uh really didn't have any effect uh in in sierra leone at that time
1: mhm but you know when you think about this whole slave trade and what what is the legacy though, of this the slave trade and domestic servitude in contemporary west africa
2: well, I again, when I started writing the book, I wasn't thinking about this, but um, as you know, there was a war in Sierra Leone in the 1990s mm-hmm. and a war in Liberia, in neighboring Liberia. And the more I've read about those conflicts, um, the more I believe that um, there is a real legacy of the slave trade and domestic servitude And one thing that you can see, in fact, Kissel wrote about this. He talked about the deep fear that people had of their neighbors, even their friends, Mm -hmm. because of the slave trade. Um, And if you read about the causes of the war, it wasn't blood diamonds in Sierra Leone. It It was really a sense among impoverished rural youth that they really had no stake in in the modern Sierra Leonean experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'd been deprived of education. They didn't have access to land. They were uh, subjugated by the chiefs. And this all relates back to the institution of domestic servitude. Mm-hmm. And there's another book that came out last year that, uh, documented this in terms of what were the motivations of many of the so called rebels who uh, started attacking villages and, and government posts in Sierra Leone in the early 1990s. So, I, I, there needs to be more study of this, but I think the societies in Sierra Leone, also in Liberia, were, were badly damaged. Uh, badly traumatized by the slave trade and by domestic servitude.
1: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've
2: talked to Sierra Leoneans about this and, and some Liberians, and they nod their heads. Uh, it's something that uh, uh, I think they they know is still somehow embedded in their culture, and it's going to be yeah. difficult to root out.
1: Yes, I, I, yes, you're, you're so right, you're so right. Well, I <laughs> noted in
0: your book, uh, Natan, did you have a question? I just wanted to mention there is a question coming out of the chat. Are there any known descendants of John Kissel in Sierra Leone or in Britain today?
2: <clears throat> well, the the short answer is no. Um, <clears throat> the first thing I did when I started my research was to reach out to Sierra Leoneans. Uh, both here and in Sierra Leone, to find out if there were any um, contemporary uh, Kizzles or other families that might have been linked to Kisle. And I went to considerable length to do that, and we found no links whatsoever. Um, I've talked to many Sierra Leoneans since the book came out, and nobody can... Has said, "Oh yeah, there's a kizzle here or a kizzle there." So unfortunately, that that seems to be a, a dead end. Now that doesn't mean that at some point we won't discover that there is somebody who that uh, can come forward and say, "Oh yes, this story was told uh, by my great great grandfather, and has come down to us over the over the decades." Um. So unfortunately, we were not able to find any any real contact at that level. But I I wouldn't I wouldn't give up. I mean, you, you never know. That's what makes well, historical research so much fun.
1: That's right. And in fact, one of the uh, noted researchers you actually mentioned him, Joseph Apollo. Am I right. pronouncing that correctly? Correct. He did mention the Gullah connection. Correct. Uh, between Sierra
2: Leone and coastal South Carolina and Georgia. Right, right. Well, that, that's a very strong connection. A lot has been done in, in recent decades to document it. Um, <clears throat> people who know about the Penn Community Center on St. Helena Island in South Carolina would would know that. <clears throat> um, there have been a number of films made and, and books written about this, so Those who are interested in in researching that connection, uh, they'll they'll certainly find plenty out there.
1: That's right. Well, I certainly want to thank you so much. We're we're wrapping up very quickly. We have about three minutes left in the show, and uh, thank you so much for sharing this information with us. This is something very new. And it's a book that I would strongly recommend to everyone because you didn't just talk about Kissel. You put a lot, you gave us a lot of historical information to ponder on and to even review some of the references and study it a little bit more. So I want to really thank you so much uh, for coming on tonight and for sharing this information uh, with us. And, Natan, you have an announcement to make about next week.
0: Yes. Please join me next week for an engaging interview and discussion with Mrs. Gloria Ramsey Lucas concerning the slave records of Edgefield County, South Carolina. Mrs. Lucas followed her dream and had a 30-year career teaching in, in New York City. Once she relocated to Georgia, she opened up a new pastime in searching for her roots. This trail led her to Edgefield, South Carolina, where a wealth of slave records were uncovered. And you can find out more next week. Okay, and Nathan
1: will be the host for next week because I will be at Sanford in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, so, Kevin, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. And providing the listeners with invaluable information regarding your book, The African American Odyssey of John Kissel. So, good night. Thank you. Thank you, co host Nathan Kemp. And remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives and beyond you can can continue this discussion on com and the research at the national archives and beyond facebook page also remember to listen to the african roots podcast tomorrow morning with angela walton Raji. good night and i look forward to you joining us next week good night Good night, Kevin. Good night, night. Nishan.
0: Good night, Bernice. Good night, Kevin.